millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Spooky Pants, the special Halloween edition of the podcast from the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Magic has gotten a bad rap for the past few hundred years. In our haste to become rational, logical creatures of the Enlightenment, we've disavowed magic of all kinds and burned a few hundred thousand women as witches along the way. Oxford professor of archaeology Chris Gosden wants to change the way we think about magic, starting with its definition, a connection with the universe that allows us to directly influence its workings. Gosden considers it the oldest and most neglected form of human engagement with the world, wrongly condemned by science and religion. His new book, Magic, A History, runs from the stones of prehistory to the apps on our smartphones to explore practices on every inhabited continent. What might we learn by considering the sentience of trees or the connections between the living and the dead? Who is excluded from the hierarchies of science and religion? And might a 21st century magic lead us to a better response to climate catastrophe? Chris Gosden joins us from Oxford to talk about all these things and more. Thanks so much for chatting with me. It's a great pleasure. Great pleasure. So what inspires an archaeologist to write a history of magic, let alone one that covers all of human civilization for all of time? Uh, well, in my case, it was two different things, really. On the one hand, I worked for a long time in Papua New Guinea, which is one of the most interesting countries on Earth. I worked there as an archaeologist, but got to know all sorts of living people. And everybody there believes in magic. There is no doubt in anybody's mind that magic exists. And there are all sorts of forms of magic. There are ancestral spirits in the landscape. But there's also magic you can use to get your kids into university, which is a new new form of magic. There's magic that maybe you can use, nobody was quite sure, to help you rob a bank. I wasn't going to try that out, but people people thought it might work. You could make yourself invisible in some way. So, so there was all of that. There, there are a whole range of people who I greatly respected 
um, I knew that they were serious and sincere in their belief in magic. And, and so I had to, you know, think what that meant for me. The, the other thing I did was work for 13 years in one of the University of Oxford's museums, the Pitt Rivers Museum. If anybody gets a chance to come to Oxford uh, under slightly less weird conditions, Pitt Rivers is the place. And the Pitt Rivers has a whole range of magical items in it. It has a, a witch in a bottle. It has some slugs on thorns to stop it raining. It has a potato that an old man had in his pocket to help him with his rheumatism. There's a whole range of different things. And a lot of these things came from 19th century Britain. So here were two quite different contexts where people without any sort of self-consciousness at all were believing in and practising magic. So then that got me thinking, well, you know, if if a number of people across the globe believe in it, maybe I should take it a little bit more seriously, certainly in a you know, scholarly sort of way. Um, and, and, you know, think about it, think what it means for me in some way. Your definition of magic is an interesting one because it is very broad in a lot yeah. of ways, but delves into all of the particulars in a huge range of places. Yeah. Would your definition of magic be shared by all of the people that you write about and talk to? Yes, that last bit is a very good question. So my definition of magic is human participation in the universe. So if you believe in and practice magic, then you feel that as a human, you have a degree of continuity with the powers of the universe, such that the words that you speak, um, the words that you write, the actions that you perform can have a direct influence on the way the world works on other people in a way that's not allowed for by the other two great belief systems, religion and science. So so for me, magic is a direct connection with the universe. Um, religious belief means that you connect primarily to a, a single god or many gods and your relationship is through them or that. And, and science gets us to stand back from the world and think about it a little bit more objectively. Um, and and only allows for particular forms of cause and effect. Um, many of you know, so many of magical practices, science wouldn't go for. And in, and an important thing I think for me is that one doesn't have to choose between magic, religion, and science. They're they're all important. They're all viable. They all do slightly different things. Um, and and as well as to to go back to magic, as well as magic being us participating in the universe, it also opens human beings up to influence from the universe. So if you believe in astrology, which many people do, then the planets, the moon, the stars can influence us, our our destinies, our well being. So it's a it's a condition of radical openness. Uh, as to your the second part of your question, which is an excellent one, do, do the people I, I work with or study believe? I, I think they probably, many of them probably do. So, so notions of shamanism, for instance, the shaman will wrestle with broad powers of the universe, often thought of in, in terms of spirit, spirits of place, 
spirits of the ancestors and and they do it in a very sort of direct psychological physical form so so they might not necessarily use the term participation but i'm hoping if i explained my idea to them they'd say oh yeah that seems that seems more or less right a lot of what you're saying about how people participate in magic makes me think it's slightly more democratic form of relating to the world than, say, religion, which might be mediated by this higher power or priest or some form of hierarchy or science, which could be inaccessible because of the education required or just because it's cold and unfeeling and like it doesn't really matter what you do because gravity doesn't care. Yeah, exactly. Gravity probably doesn't care, but but other aspects of the universe do. Yes, I like the democracy. I think I think anyone can can believe in magic. Obviously, anyone can practice magic. I, and the other thing about ma- I mean, magic often gets a bad press for a, a range of reasons, but it's sometimes seen as a sort of a fossil belief. It's the sort of thing that people who who are a bit ignorant, a bit behind the times, believe in. And if you're fully modern, fully, you know, up to the minute, then you don't believe in magic and therefore you believe in science. But I don't think... So I think think magic is democratic. I think it can be personal. We can each have our own magic. Um, And I think it's incredibly inventive and creative. Uh, and the other aspect of magic, or another aspect of magic, which really appeals to me, uh, is that it has a moral dimension. So if you believe that you're connected to the universe, so your point about the scientific universe being uncaring, cold, in magic there's often an emotional dimension, certainly on the part of the person, but also magical practitioners, magical believers, may think there's an emotional dimension on the part of the world that the world is sentient, the world is caring, the world is feeling. And and our relationship with the world is more like then our relationship with other human beings, where we have a degree of responsibility, a degree of care, a degree of feeling, which science doesn't really allow for at all most of the time. And and religion directs those feelings towards towards the deities. So I think that sort of openness has a, a democracy, a, a, an emotion, a moral valence, all of which for me are really important. All of that has echoes of someone you write about in the introduction, Max Weber, who wrote about the modern world being in yeah. this process of disenchantment. To be modern is basically to disbelieve in magic. And yet, belief in magic prevails, despite everything Max Weber had to say on the subject. So how many people really do believe in magic today? Yes. People are really into stuff like tarot. There There are apps for astrology. People, my daughter i she probably hate me for raising this but she says one of the first things they do in the office of a morning is is um, look at their astrology app and see what the day might hold for them so i think magic is incredibly variable and it's interesting when people are surveyed many of them even the most hard bitten do admit to some sort of magical 
belief, belief in ghosts, maybe astrology, maybe this, maybe that. So often sort of three quarters of people in in the States, in Europe or wherever, places where you might think Weber had triumphed and magic was dead, um, actually say, well, deep down, I do, I do sort of believe in some of this stuff. Yeah, the facts on the ground or the stats in the app store really belie this easy trajectory from magic to religion to science. It seems like that doesn't really map out, you know, it's not a progression. It seems much more complicated. And I like the way you describe it in the book as a triple helix. Can you elaborate Mm. a little bit more on what that means and how Mm. that relationship plays out through history? No, so that's right at the core of the book, the notion of the triple helix of magic, religion and science. And I think, as as we were just saying before, these things are separable, but they're not separates. They they blend into each other in, in all sorts of ways. So the history of science, the history of, of chemistry comes out of alchemy, the history of astronomy comes out of astrology, mathematics is, is deeply linked to astrological thought and the observations of, of planets and so on. There are all sorts of entanglements. Uh, and Christian religion, for instance, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on miracles, raising the dead, feeding unfeasibly large numbers of people with loaves and fishes, you know, all of these. Uh, many of the saints had miracles attached to them. So, so although I think you can separate out those three things, deep down they're all linked and all intertwined in various different ways. And while the history of religion has been written and rewritten very properly, the history of science has had similar amounts of attention the history of magic really hasn't so if these are three pretty equal strands we've lost a lot of what it means to be human by sort of you know being a bit sniffy about magic and it and it's really interesting that Weber saw loss as well as he he said you know in order to be rational in order to be modern we need to give up magic but then he did use this term Entzauberung in in German, the the disenchantment of the the world. So for him, we were losing things as well as gaining. Well, why do you think the history of magic has been so neglected? What is it about scholarship that makes it so sniffy? What gives magic such a bad reputation? Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's uh, so for, for some reason, and I'm not entirely sure why, 19th century anthropologists, people like E.B. Tyler, who worked in Oxford, and James Fraser, who wrote The Golden Bough, they saw magical belief as primitive. And in some ways, almost sort of childish. It's, it was the, the attempt to impose the human will on the world in a way that, you know, maybe five-year-old kids do. And the process of, of humans growing up was to give up magic. But Europeans, Euro-Americans were obsessed with why they were better than everybody else. And, the, and part of the root of being better was being more rational and being more scientific. And, and, and therefore, the, for the 19th century, magic became the sort of mirror image of the rational, the scientific, and therefore had to be done down. 
And and then there were, and I'm not sure how far this was a deliberate practice, but I think from, let's say, the 17th century onwards, religion and science put together a sort of propaganda campaign against magic. And and things like witchcraft were absolutely prominent in all of that. And And many of the people, many of the women often, who were accused of being witches probably were no such thing. Or, you know, they used some herbs to try and cure kids of TB or or whatever. And all of that got blown out of proportion so that they were communing with the devil and trying to channel evil into the world. So I think it was partly a deliberate thing that the church and a nascent science fixed upon magic and therefore fixed upon the bad bits. The Victorian era in England and the States is really interesting at this juncture when considering stuff like science and magic, because at the same time that you see the ascendance of this scientific white supremacy, really, and this belittling of non-white cultures for being primitive, for believing in magic, you also had the rise of seances and communing with the dead. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah. did nobody notice the contradiction? Yeah, there? yeah, yeah. No, they were, they were, there were so many tensions in Victorian thought, and 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 the whole sort of spiritualist movement, which started on your side of the Atlantic in the eighteen sixties, and and interestingly, probably, I mean, these histories haven't been written, but probably white practitioners took inspiration from native practices. Um, broadly shamanistic practices in attempting to commune with spirits, to talk to the dead, all of those sorts of things. And as you say, Euro-Americans became obsessed with this and they all went along to seances. Many of them went along in order to prove that they were rubbish. But sometimes they came away slightly puzzled that maybe it wasn't quite as rubbishy as they thought. And people like Freud... In, in the 20th century, really got into it. So not only did he go along to seances, but he allowed himself to try and become a medium. And the longer he went on, the more he believed in things like telepathy, um, that you could foretell the future through dreams, a whole range of... And, and people have said that the whole notion of the subconscious may come out of of the spiritualist or, you know, in some way echo the spiritualist movement in that there is a reality beneath the reality that we operate and work on day to day. So again, something that we would see as broadly respectable, Freudian, I mean, there are all sorts of critics of Freudian theory, but but people would see it as a sort of, you know, a, a reasonable way to understand human beings came out of a belief in magic or practices of magic, which most people would think, oh, no, I don't believe that. Right. Or very respectable scientists like Newton, discoverer of the aforementioned gravity, yeah. who also was into the occult and talked about demons of science. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, um... yeah. John Maynard Keynes said that, that Newton was not the first of the scientists. He was the last of the magicians. And that's after Keynes bought Newton's papers and went through them. I realised that he spent an enormous amount of time practising alchemy, biblical prophecy. It's a bit like the Victoria. There wasn't a bit of Newton's brain that did science and a bit that did magic. 
It was just the one brain and all these things were there intertwined. And, and in some ways, Newton was trying to develop a grand theory of everything in which he wanted to include God, spirits, gravity, optics, light. It was all equally important. Yeah, almost like unifying these three different strands of the helix. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Well, how do we get back to that kind of synthesis? Or is is going back the wrong way to phrase it? Yeah. Is, is that as harmful as the othering or demonizing of non-European cultures that yeah. happened in the 19th century? Yeah. I think that's an incredibly important point. And we shouldn't romanticize other people's cultures almost as much as we shouldn't demonize other people's. I mean, everybody everywhere wrestles with really tricky stuff about life and death. All cultures have power imbalances. People do nasty things to each other. I mean, embracing magic and care and all those sorts of things sound great, but it doesn't mean that suddenly you're at one with the universe and, you know, everything is is clear, unproblematical. I mean, it's a way of... These things are ways of working through really difficult problems. So magic isn't a panacea and it's not to embrace some sort of, you know, new agey romanticisation of, of somebody somewhere. But we need to experiment. I mean, I think the only thing we can think at the moment is we can't carry on doing all the things that we're doing right now. We've got to do something different or else none of us are going to be around. So so I think people are desperately worried about the future, both the future of the world, you know, the planet being on fire, diseases rampaging, all those, but also personal futures, what what our futures will look like. And and I think often science and you know the broader forms of culture have ignored the personal, have ignored the emotional, have ignored the effective aspect of being in the world. The fact that, you know, when we walk through landscapes that mean a lot to us, it's profoundly affecting those sorts of things. So I think if we admit and indeed celebrate that we all believe in magic, or we could do if we allowed ourselves to, then that allows for a, a degree of commonality. And, and, and magic deals with the big stuff. You know, what does the future hold? Why did something go wrong in the past? Where did I lose my wallet? Um, you know, what what is the meaning of like how why is my cow sick and how do I make it better? You know, all human life is there and the worries that people have to some degree change, but in you know, in other ways they don't change that much. Yes, I still worry about what gets my cow sick, right. or in my case, my dog. <laughs> but I mean, I like at the end of your book when you consider what the future of magic might be, yeah. what a 21st century practice might be for yeah. those of us who don't already consciously engage yeah. magic of whatever kind. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, if if you believe in democracy, it's certainly not my place to tell anyone what the magic should. But, but the sorts of things that interest me is how do we develop an ethics of care for each other? Well, I think that's really important, but for the planet more 
generally. And I think many people would say, rather than thinking of the planet as a series of resources from which we can take as much as we want, whenever we want, wherever we want, maybe we should think a little bit more about the nature of our responsibility, both to the planet and also future generations. So so there's that on the one hand, the real importance of care, but also then intriguingly, at the sort of weirder fringes of science were weird to me i mean i'm i'm a humble archaeologist so i don't you know things like physics are are way beyond me but but i'm fascinated in a very amateur way by things like quantum mechanics so the possibility that the observer can influence the things that they're observing and the notion of these things entangled subatomic particles where one say with you will change some of its characteristics polarity spin these sorts of things and one here with me will will do it instantaneously and faster than the speed of light can travel between the two of them and physicists probably for want of a better word are starting to talk about these things being conscious of each other so if the basic building blocks of the universe are conscious i mean your, your average animist you know if you said that to a, an aboriginal person in australia They'd say, yes, <laughs> you know, what's taken you so long to realise that? And and so there are lots of people in the world who would genuinely believe, not just that trees are sentient, many of us could probably go there, but the rivers are, rocks are, these sorts of things. And that's much harder. But perhaps exploring, experimenting, pursuing some of these notions would give us quite a different view of the way in which the world works. So I I think, I mean, the first thing for me, at least, I'd need to do is experiment with all of these ideas and see how much I can unlearn of the, the Weberian rationalist paradigm not not that one should ever get rid of all that i think rationalism and i think irrationalism is a bad thing and we can see aspects of that at work in our political processes and so on but but i think only rationalism is not enough we have links in the show notes to chris gosden's magisterial magic a history as well as a few other recommended essays and books on the subject we'll be back next week till then Take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 